Picture, if you will, an apple. It's red or green. It's crunchy and juicy. It's a very nice apple. And that apple has a market value. Now, picture a change in the world that results in everyone deciding that apples should be free. In that scenario, what happens to the people who plant and grow and harvest the apples? They still have a product, but they can't get paid in the way they used to. Now, picture that that apple is in demand everywhere. Every time you turn on your TV and see a commercial, there's that apple. When you download an app for your phone, there's that apple. In the movies, in video games, in restaurants, there's that apple. In 2015, the music business is kind of like this. Everyone wants to use music because music sets moods. It creates emotions. It makes people want to dance. In other words, it has value. Yet the marketplace says it's free. This is the dilemma that people who make music find themselves in today. It still costs the same to record and press and promote an album, yet we can't sell this product like we used to. So those of us who produce the music, the artists and labels, have to wonder how long we can keep this up. Is there a future in music or what? Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Music scenes have always been ephemeral. In fact, it's probably impossible to know if you're part of a scene until it's over. But music scenes, at least in retrospect, might be defined as places where creativity flourishes amongst like-minded people, or at least people who share certain touchstone bands in common. The indie rock underground scene of the late 80s and early 90s was fairly widespread, encompassing geographically distant bands like Husker Du, The Melvins, and Bitch Magnet. This scene is the focus of the new book, Your Band Sucks, by John Fine, guitarist of Bitch Magnet, who we'll talk to today. His book gives a powerful example of how important scenes can be in giving people a sense of belonging, of having a tribe. Marnie Stern, on the other hand, became a musician without the benefit of a scene. In fact, she created her music in solitude in her bedroom, and she talks later on the show about her desire to constantly challenge herself to write music that she truly believes in, rather than settling for less. Our third guest today is Claudia Meza, a self-proclaimed scene destroyer, who also discusses her move away from playing in a band and into sound installation. That's all coming up today on The Future of What. Stay with us. John Fine is the author of Your Band Sucks, and he joins us from New York via Skype. John, welcome to the future of what? Thank you so much. As somebody who sort of identifies as, as someone who gets it from mm -hmm. that era, mm -hmm. I mean, I used to put Joyless Street on mixtapes in college, <laughs> so that should tell you <laughs> where we're at. Um, uh, drumming, drumming on that song, right? Pardon me? The drumming on that song, right? Oh yeah, right. I mean, but that I mean, Bitch Magnet. That was always my uh, my actual my boyfriend in when I was a sophomore in college. He named his bunny rabbit Orestes. <laughs> 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 I 
Awesome. So it was, it was, you know, I really, I, I definitely got where you were coming from. So I really was dying to know, why did you decide to write this book? Well, here's the thing. The book wasn't even my idea. Um, the way it came about was that I went to an editor at a Viking um, with an entirely different book idea. I, I kind of knew this guy. And um, we uh, went out to lunch and he asked me what I was up to. And I said, well, funny you mentioned that. And I kind of did this whole big song and dance. And like, I got this book idea and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
the ticket to being <laughs> like, you know, taken seriously. Um, I, I'm, I'm in meaning to, uh, <laughs> I've been meaning to reach out to Larry Crane. Um, cause I remember reading like some post vomit launch, um, like after vomit launch broke up and they kind of did like some, to call it an oral history would be too highfalutin, but I mean, there was something in a fanzine and at the end of it, he was saying like, you know, and they, they all agree it was like a great experience, but at the end he's like, God, like, you know, I spent, you know, six years or eight years in a band called Vomit Launch. Like, can you, <laughs> like, imagine explaining that to your family. Like, right. and, uh, but I thought, I, I thought what was really great about your book was you, you took a while to get to the point, but at the, in the very last chapter, you really brought it home because really the essence of, of what we experienced was we were in a scene and that uh-huh. scene created belonging for us. Yeah. And I thought that yeah. was just, that's a super powerful message because I feel like today in the age of the internet, I'm not really sure what has happened to scenes. I, I don't know if people really have scenes. Maybe they have scenes in their hometown still, but I feel like the internet has diffused it all so much. You can go on the internet and be in a chat room and that can be your scene. But sure. it's like, are those people that you see face to face? I don't know. Well, I, I can't, I can't speak to, um, what's going on right now. Um, but, but like my, my gut feeling is that, you know, th- th- there's still venues, there's still a circuit, there are still bands. I mean, like, I, I don't know who they are, but I know they're out there. And so, so there has to be some of this. Um, and you know, the internet is a, <laughs> it's a complicating thing. I mean, I spent years in my real life job, like writing about media. So all of that was about the internet is doing this thing to this thing. And, um, you know, th- there was the digitization of um, many aspects of the American economy, the world economy, hell, many aspects of being a human being. Th- th- there's a lot of collateral damage. You know, um, there are fewer bookstores. There are fewer record stores. Um, uh, there's a very interesting conversation to be had over the net gain or net loss of um, – a digitized music world for a musician on the level of the bands we're talking about. But I mean, I have no question, you know, there's no question that it, it got a lot harder for a lot of independent labels. Mm-hmm. I mean, forget the major labels. We're not even talking about them right now. And I think, you know, but, um, at the same time, you know, I do think of, um, you know, some lonely kid in like the middle of Nebraska who very early on can get a sense that, there are other people like him or her out in the world. And, um, and th- th- that's like so powerful. But I really also thought that it was great that you made the point that, um, you know, it's like we were weirdos and freaks. We found the other weirdos and freaks who fit in our little puzzle piece. And we had these fabulous, you know, playing in bands, touring, making records, you know, sleeping on really disgusting floors for years, <laughs> experiences. Yeah. And now we've arrived in our 40s and you very commonly can meet somebody at a, at a, you know, a party or at a work function and they just have no concept. Like yeah. they are completely, they just look at you like, what? Exactly. It's crazy. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I feel like I've gotten a little better at explaining this, but um, I don't know, maybe not. Um, the, the, the people that I work with now are kind of the coolest about this, but it, it's sort of been part of the package because when, when I started my job, it was, everyone was aware of the fact that I was like, you know, this book was coming out. And so I, I don't know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I just looked out. But it kind of plays into this whole idea that I'm talking about with belonging and with finding your scene and finding your tribe, because I feel like ultimately now what is really clear to me is it doesn't matter that these people don't understand, you know, 
that ninety percent of the people that I meet don't understand what I do because those ten percent who do, that's really what matters. Do. Yeah, that, that yeah, that's true. I mean, like you know, we, we were never doing this to, and this is actually the other thing that, as you know, is really hard to explain. Like you know, um, I w- did an interview with a radio station in upstate New York, um, and like the guy was like, "At any point, did you think you were going to make it?" And I said, well, that really wasn't what this was about. You know, I mean, like, as long as we could, like, you know, make another record and do another tour, that was it. I mean, like, the the idea that someone from the scene was going to be a thing was just absolutely inconceivable. You know, like, I mean, all, all of, like, I had an entire arc of a band, you know, like, formation, flourishing, breaking up, like, before Nirvana was anything. So, I mean, like, that, that wasn't even on the fucking table, you know? So um, it, it, it still is. It still is weird because um, I don't know. Like there is always that conversation, you know, in in one form or another. But as you say, you know, there are people who get it. I guess um, you know we. Those are our people. I mean, and, and those are the ones who you know, as you say, kind of matter in, in in terms of this conversation. I was having. We did a live show yesterday, and I had um, Tucker Martin in the studio, the producer. Uh-huh. Um, and and we were talking about. Uh, we were talking about. Um, Basically, how different scenes in different cities have a different vibe, and um, we were talking about the Portland scene, uh-huh. and you know, people in Portland are super duper friendly. Like they, there's like a big metal scene, there's a big Americana scene, there's like all these mm-hmm. in between, and a lot of the same people play in the same bands. Like they mm-hmm. just cross over, and you'll see your friend so and so in you know six different bands, and it's just very supportive. And I, I it suddenly dawned on me. I was like, is it because Nobody has any hopes of anything bigger that they're able to be sort of supportive and loving because I don't know about you, but I find like the L.A. scene where everybody thinks they're one step away from being the next big thing is Mm -hmm. super closed and people are kind of cold and, you know, or even in Brooklyn when I was playing in bands Mm -hmm. in Brooklyn. I mean, it was like I remember that band Morningwood. They were like convinced Mm -hmm. that they were about to be, you know, number one on the pop charts. You couldn't get those guys to talk to you. (laughs) <laughs> I, don't remember, I, I don't remember them or what happened to them but we'll you know, see and i rest my case <laughs> i don't know i mean the, the thing with new york was that um it was always really big in the sense that there was always so much going on that like you could find you know the people that weren't going to be dicks um and like it, 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 it also i mean maybe it was just the luck of the draw in terms of you know where i was and um who I know, but it was like really open. Um, you know, like I would spend, you know, weekend nights drinking with, you know, in, in the same room. I mean, you know, like my, my drinking crew is like some guy in some crazy noise band that no one was ever going to like. And, you know, one or two of the guys in helmet uh-huh. and, 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 and they, they were totally, you know, they, they, they were totally awesome. I mean, like they, they were real serious music heads. It, it was the rhythm section, you know, real serious music heads, you know, like we'd plenty to talk about and like, Oh, by the way, every, you know, now and again, they just, disappear and go on the road for six months. Um, so, I mean, I, I never really felt it like that. And usually the, the people that I did get it from, like it was, they were easy enough to ignore and there were so many of us that it, you know, it didn't really matter. Um, you know, th- th- things did get weird in terms of like, you know, commerce coming in and major labels coming in and like that happened a couple of times, you know, in my time in New York. But I, I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't feel it affecting uh, the interpersonal level. You know, we, we could argue about whether or not it affected some, like, aesthetic decisions certain bands made. But chances are the bands that made those aesthetic decisions weren't going to be our favorite bands anyway. Right. Um, so there's that. 
You know, my favorite story that Slim tells about the the pre-Nirvana days in Olympia, Washington, um, was that he and Kurt were living in the Martin Apartments, which is this really small apartment building in downtown Olympia. Uh-huh. Right before um, before uh, Kurt went on tour to tour for Nevermind, and mm-hmm. he never came back. And they uh, just threw all of his belongings out in the street eventually. <laughs> Because he just never came back. And it was like he literally, like, that's how unprepared they were for what happened with that record. So let me ask you one question, because you say this in your book. You say maybe rock doesn't matter anymore. Do you really think that? Or were you just being kind of curmudgeonly at that moment? Well, I, 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 was, I was being curmudgeonly, as I am at a lot in the book. But, but seriously, um, I don't think there's any real question that hip-hop, has taken the place in culture that rock and roll had um, on a fill in the blank 25 years ago. Um, it feels to me that there's no question that, you know, hip hop is the dominant, you know, strain of pop music um, by a lot. Um, it, d- does that matter in terms of the stuff we're talking about? I don't think so. But I, I also I also think that, you know, m- maybe it's just me, but like um, I think that if you're you know, there's many more paths. When when we were coming up, like, you know, you were going to start a band. Now, now you could be a DJ. Now, now you could get into dance music. I mean, like, I feel that, you know, th- th- there's a lot more subcultures available to you. So there's, like, less primacy of this thing. You know, like, people can have... I'm, I'm friends with a lot of musicians here who are doing cool stuff that, like, didn't ever really have anything to do with punk rock. And, and I'm not saying that, like, everybody has to love Black Flag as much as me to be cool. But, but I mean, I would feel that, like, everyone had to come, like, in, in the era that you and I are talking about, or the year in the book, like, the year in the book, the 80s and 90s, like, you had to, in some way, come through punk rock. Like, maybe it was Minor Threat, maybe it was the Sex Pistols, maybe it was, I don't know, fill in the blank, maybe, maybe you were an idiot and it was a dead milkman, I don't know. But, like, there was some of that. And now, like, you know, you can be, you know, that thing is less... Central. So I, I guess all of those things is kind of what I was getting at. And by the way, like no, no real value judgment, I mean, on, on any of it being a good or bad thing. But I mean, it's just, it's just different now. No, I, I, you know, I, I'm fascinated by that whole question because, you know, when we were coming up in the 80s, there had only been rock music for 30 years. Right. And now there's been rock music for, what is it? 60 that? years. 60. Wah, wah. Yeah. Wah. yeah. So it's, it changes everything. You know, it makes it really yeah. different because it's not... It's not what it once was. Yeah. And as, uh, you know, like in, in 2000, if I'm getting my math right, in 2000, which by the way is 15 years ago, like, you know, 2000 is as far from the first Sex Pistols record as the Sex Pistols record was from, you know, Elvis Presley. Right. Which is mind blowing to me because to me, like, there's a real big, there's a huge, I mean, I, I got really into a lot of like, 70s music, um, 70s funk, kraut rock, um, you know, psych and like weird hard rock, big obsession of mine. But to me, there's still like this enormous before and after. And like wh- whether you draw the line at Stooges or the Ramones or, or the Sex Pistols, like, you know, there was a huge before and after. And like, the, I, I just feel that like that's like, it's, it's all just rock and roll now for good or ill. And, and, and maybe that's not such a bad thing, you know, I don't know. Well, John Fine is the author of Your Band Sucks, which is available now. John, thank you so much for coming on The Future of What? Thank you so much. Can I be annoying and plug the uh, book reading I'm doing? Absolutely. So on Sunday, June 7th, I will be in conversation with the illustrious music writer Douglas Wolk at Powell's in beautiful downtown Portland. And I am so incredibly stoked to be doing this there. And um, I, uh, I hope to see you all there.
In a moment, we're going to talk to the guitarist and singer Marnie Stern, who has put out all four of her records on Kill Rock Stars. Her experience is unique because, unlike John Fine, she didn't come out of a certain scene. Instead, she made music in a vacuum by herself, the anti-scene experience. Let's take a listen to her song, Year of the Glad. Welcome back to The Future of What. I'm Portia Sabin, and right now we're talking to the fabulous Marnie Stern. Hello. Yay. I'm so glad to have you in the studio. I'm glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about, I mean, first of all, you might want to tell people how you started. Um, I started for a long time, I think, before I was with you, probably 10 years of working on songs on my own at home and playing shows out and... Uh, this was right at the tail end of when bands mostly got signed from being seen at shows. Mm-hmm. I didn't know any bands who got signed from anything online. I had sent my demo in, and that was like a strange thing. Yes, and, and Marnie is one of four artists who's been signed to Kill Rock Stars in 24 years off of a demo tape. Yes. So, so that was great because I was playing at places where... Where, you know, I'd be in the lounge somewhere, you know, where where no one would really be able to see or understand what I was doing. But I was working on songs all the time, constantly, and Mm -hmm. really trying to, listening to lots of strange music and really trying to figure out and find my own voice. And yes. And so something about you that people might not know, you're from New York City. That's right. From the Upper East Side. You were born and raised here. Right. Like me. Right. And you, at the time that you were teaching yourself to play guitar, you were otherwise leading a pretty straight, normal life, right? Yes. It's so funny, too, because you grew up similar to me, and you're not like most people there either. (laughs) New York is an interesting place. Yes. Um, But yeah, I was working a nine-to-five job at an advertising agency for seven years, working as an assistant to a creative director. And it was literally nine to five and at five on the dot I would leave get a fountain soda and a piece of pizza and then work on music until two in the morning and get up and do it all over again every day and you know I was playing in bands here and there but really I was working on my own stuff I started on four track then I mean I didn't get my own computer in my home until 2003 maybe and that's when I got Pro Tools and that's when I started recording and Mm -hmm. then the sounds changed and then I was doing more layering and probably just being by myself forced me to try different things. And it's just so interesting. I mean, from a cultural standpoint, it really has always fascinated me, your journey, because I feel like in our culture, it's way more common for boys to sort of 
seclude themselves, especially in that all important like yeah. 12 to 14 range. Yes. But they just shut themselves in their bedrooms and they teach themselves to play guitar. Yes. And then by the time they get to high school, they already know how to play. And that's what happened to me. I wanted to be in a band when I was 14. Right. But by the time I picked up the bass guitar and went to school with it, all the guys have been playing band, playing them by themselves yes. for so long. Yes. They were so much better than me that I was like, eh, forget it. Yes, yes. <laughs> I just that, gave up. Yeah, that's true, though, and that's very interesting. But then a lot of people learned to play but just kind of didn't have much creativity to what they were doing, just, you know, would lock themselves in their rooms and learn this record, that record, this record, and then that was it. And right, then, right. And then just want to be on a stage. Right, exactly. So creativity is actually an entirely different thing than just technical proficiency. Yeah, and feeling like you have, you know there's something you want to express but not really knowing how. And that was for many years the most frustrating part of not knowing how to take an instrument and put myself into it. Right. Right. And I know I did not sign you. My husband, Slim Moon, signed you to Kill Rockstars. But I know because he brought home the demo tape and we listened to it over and over. And and one of the things that we loved about your music that's still true is that you play what would be considered very technical, very muscular and masculine music. Yes. But with a completely Marnie yes. thing, like just a feminine, like you're a girl. Like no one would listen to you and be confused. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I kind of knew that going into it. But, I, you know, I'm sort of torn with a, like an angel on one side that wants proficiency, that I like the technical aspect of things. I think it's amazing to watch someone's fingers going crazy. But I also think there's something slightly tacky to that. And so I was constantly pulling myself back and forth. And that's, I guess, where, the, where my songs came from. Right. So you still feel driven to write songs, though, right? Oh, of course, yes. To my detriment, it's where I derive a lot of my identity from. And, you know, at this point, I want to feel like I don't need to do that. And I don't need to, but it sure does help feel good when I produce something. I mean, it's like anything. You feel good about yourself when you create something that you like. Right. On the flip side, 99% of the time I'm creating things that I don't like and then I'm very hard on myself. And I think that's what everybody understands as just how artists live their lives. Yeah. You know, you have to, you have something inside of you, you want to get it out and you want to get it out properly. Yes. In a way that you like and you're annoyed at yourself when it doesn't work out. Are people hard on themselves? I mean, I don't know because I don't know and I can't go into anyone's brain for the process, but I feel like a lot of people... Or I would imagine a lot of people get to a point. I always wanted to get to a point where no matter what I did, I'd finally think, this is pretty good, no matter what it was. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't, it still... Doesn't feel that way to you? Uh-uh. Like, yeah. this is terrible. And then, wow, this is really good. <laughs> I know. <laughs> There's no middle ground. Mm -mm. That's fine, though. You know, I mean, I feel like that's just your process. There's plenty of people. I would rather have someone do that than someone produce something that's mediocre and be like, good enough yeah that's exactly fine. you're right you're right you're right you're right you know and i think you know i listen to music sometimes and i'm like ooh, everywhere. they settled man it's everywhere they settled yeah. for that little song there well also that's all i really seem to hear everywhere <laughs> else all the time like <laughs> right right <laughs> yeah where do you, i teens still have angst i'm right. sure they Don't do you think they do i think they must so why doesn't it come out in their music exactly Exactly. Where's the anger? Where's the well, frustration? I think it's uncool right now for mm. kids to be 
quote, emotional at all. Oh, interesting. I think they think that's lame and overreaction to or to anything or there's something about it I know that is offensive, which is so bizarre. Right? So bizarre. Because doesn't that mean that they're going to bottle everything up and then just at some point explode? Yeah. Well, yeah, you'd think. You'd think. It, but when? You know, like when does that happen when you're... Maybe it doesn't. Maybe, maybe evolution doesn't. is happening and that won't be the way. Maybe there won't be. I mean... Or everyone's just passively going to go along until climate change crushes us. <laughs> I mean, that's no, what maybe. I think. Maybe. It's just really scary. Because, I mean, you know, we were younger in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. And there was, I mean, look at our label. Look at Kel Rockstars. Yeah. It's like, you know, know. Bratmobile, Bikini, Kel Unwound, Nirvana. Which is becoming retro. Like right. people cool are retro. Cool retro, but yeah. without the... The emotion. Emotion. Exactly. It, it's like, oh, this sounds like, but it's just exactly. a shell of it. Yeah. And that, I think, I was even listening to some other something the other day. Someone said, oh, check out some band. And I was listening and I was like, huh, Yeah. This reminds me of like the New York scene in 19, even later, it was like 1995, but it was just as though you took that time without the whole feeling of it. And I guess the retroness of it is the cool part. Right. Just how it sounds yeah. and how it looks. But also what's even more ridiculous about that is no one has to dig really hard anymore to find anything. So... Before, when you would pick up something, you would have to search for records, like, to find good saturated coverage of what a sound was happening. Right. And then you were, like, cool because it was hard to find, and then you were one of the only people who knew about it. Right. Now, there's access to all of it all the time. So, so what? Yeah, you went on the internet, took two seconds, found these bands, mimicked them. Right. And it and when it comes out of context like that, I wonder too, because I feel like it's the same way with films and TV. You know, people can watch anything they want, and so they don't necessarily have any historical perspective on it at all. Right. You know, it's like we don't understand what the history of the time that this was made in. Like, what was it speaking to? Right. And right. Now, but now we have it's just like, oh look, here's a cool artifact. Right. It's weird. It's like we live in this incredible consumer culture to the point where yeah. everything is just a commodity and it has nothing. It's divorced from history. Yes. Or reality. Yes. Which is just super weird. You know, like there was that trend for a little bit of, I mean, I'm guilty of it too, just very like upbeat woo-woos in songs, like a lot of joy and happiness. But I think it's like the game Telephone just people do it and then different people do it and then different people do it and it just gets so worn down that they're not really happy or trying to express any part of the original idea of whoever mm -hmm. was doing it. Right. But there's the song and that's the trend. Right. Now tell us about when you wrote your first album, you've been reading a ton of was <laughs> philosophy. A ton of philosophy. Yeah. Tons of art history books, which I got to say, I'm so divorced from all of that stuff now. I look at it and like some of the books I was reading, and I think, Jesus, you know, a lot of <laughs> concentration was happening. But yeah, as I said before, I was really trying to take, I was frustrated with the instrument of the guitar, of making a song. I listened to all this music and could kind of mimic what they were doing, but didn't really want to be doing that and didn't know how to put myself into it. And so when I was reading all of these different things, it was all about individuality and becoming, you know, the best, per a lot of things that would sound like self-help things, but that you really need 
when you're, well, I guess you'd always really need it, but I really needed it at that point in my life to try and step out of the box, you know, especially because I was around Brooklyn in that blow up scene of two, early 2000s where it was, I mean, I guess every, there are still a lot of bands in Brooklyn everywhere. It was different then, though. I felt like it was different. Yeah. And so I just was doing really strange things like writing myself letters of encouragement, <laughs> receiving them, opening them up in the mail. <laughs> wow. Feeling really touched by them. Oh, my <laughs> God. Read them because I was very – it was a real loner period in my life. You know, uh-huh. I had a close friend, but I didn't see anyone. I would go for, you know, the whole weekend, of course, I wouldn't see anyone. And then after my the first record came out and then I had a, you know, music career and was touring all the time – I became more and more isolated and would go two months at a time without seeing anyone, without dressing. I was on a schedule, (laughs) the opposite schedule, where I'd wake up at midnight, be up till eight in the morning, drink a beer, be up till two, then go to bed, wake up at midnight for a long time. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that wasn't to like further an artistic side. I just was so gung-ho, I was so in it, was so convicted, and I was just doing it nonstop. Like, I was reading about sleep patterns, and because I was doing music like three hours, then a break, then three hours, then a break, I kind of got it in my mind that I could just rotate around the clock and sleep (laughs) a few hours in between. Wow. But no socializing, I mean. Wow, that's amazing. Kind of. I mean, crazy. Yeah, on crazy, some level, crazy, definitely. But you know, also interesting. Yeah, and to know, I mean, I think the other thing about being a musician, being in the music business, like I am, and I think everyone that we work with, yeah, like we're music crazy people. Like we oh, love yeah. music, and we've had that experience of music feeling like a song saved your life. Yes, of course. And so to have gone through that, it's like you realize the true potential and the power of music, and that's why I've been so interested lately in this sort of lack of like where's the fire well my my frustration right now comes with for a long time i was angry and frustrated and those are like emotions on my part with the way things were going with popular music with blandness with put some effort into it no personality but the thing that worries me now is that i'm starting to not care like i'm so (laughs) right sick of hearing it, seeing it, that I just almost want to shut it all out. And that's not good because that's, I don't know why, but I just know that that's not good. Like I am so tired of being on tour and seeing three crappy, crappy bands who have never even worked together to try and come up with anything. It's just band after band after band. I mean, it's just a really strange, strange time right now. And I guess you just ride it out and keep going. There has to be a point where that protest, angsty something rises to the surface because that's the nature of things. You can't have the way the internet is, the way everyone just looking down all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, walking down the street, I do it, but it is, I know this is just an obvious thing, but if you walk down the street of Manhattan, I'm in the elevator three times a day with someone who doesn't get off because they're looking at their (laughs) phone when the thing opens. Right, right. It's like, Everyone's yeah. just stuck in this. This weird sort of checked out. Like, yeah. So why would the music be any different that they're making? Right. No, I think you're right to say that a change is coming because that's I'm, – I'm starting to feel like we've got to be on the cusp of something pretty serious because it just feels so stuck. Yeah. And it feels so empty. 
just to have fun songs be the only thing that we've got going on yeah. in a culture is kind of scary. But that's what I mean by when I say uncool, it's unfashionable to be too emotive. It's right. Right. That's totally true. And I think when you look at the Riot Girl movement and like Olympia in DC in the early nineties, yeah. it became fashionable to give a crap. Yes. Exactly. To like actually have an emotion and to think things exactly. and to do stuff. And I think that was true. I mean, think about like X ray specs with polystyrene. Yeah. I mean, that the whole punk yeah. movement of the seventies yeah. was because people were like, No, I want to express myself even if I don't know how to play an instrument. Yeah. I'm just gonna jump on the stage yeah. and do it. Yeah. And I feel like we're really, really do. For that but if the person jumps on the stage right now then somebody films it and then it goes up onto the internet on their facebook and then people make fun of them for oh, yeah there's no first of all there's no room for like a movement to cultivate like a bunch of p- people getting together and oh you know it used to be there'd be some club and five bands would just play there regularly every weekend and people who came to the thing would say, oh, these bands play here all the time and they're kind of like, oh, they all get to know each other and then they do bands together. Right. But now, the first night, it would be videoed on the internet. Oh, they were doing something kind of cool. Then someone over here hears it. And in a way, what's frustrating is you would have thought that would be great if that could happen then that person would hear that make something amazing and then you'd have you know the idea of the internet was so great for a long time like this connected world right but oddly it's making everyone lazier right right so it's dissolving scenes rather than helping i think so i think that's interesting i think the issue is exactly what you keep getting at with this whole idea of do you have anything to say right like do people have anything to say a and b do they feel comfortable saying it maybe that's the problem right is like can they actually say what they think or are they just so terrified that everyone will come down on them the way teens get beat up by their friends on facebook and stuff with comments they say those are way meaner than anyone would ever say to you in school right because you can do it anonymously yeah that's terrible yes and with music because any type of creative endeavor you're so sensitive to what people would say so yeah i think it would i think it's probably difficult but if my yeah, I, I needed – the other main point that I wanted to make is that I needed all of those years being stuck in my bedroom to find my sound. I right. needed time to – there were times where I had I had different record CDs that I would make every two years thinking, no, these are good. And I thank God every day that it didn't happen until when it happened because I wasn't ready. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And, and that's a big thing. We've been talking to Marnie Stern. (laughs) (laughs) Marnie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. On the future of what? Claudia Meza is a sound artist and former guitarist of multiple bands, including Explode Into Colors. Claudia, welcome to the future of what? Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you. 
So um, I'm having you here today. We're talking about scenes, and you have been in a couple of scenes in your life, actually several. You grew up in L.A., and so you were in the L.A. scene, the L.A. sort of noise rock scene, and then you moved to Olympia, and you were in that scene, and then now you live in Portland, and so you're part of this music scene. And would you like to tell us anything about music scenes in general, those three (laughs) scenes you've been in? Yeah, I mean, um, I feel like... I don't know. You don't really know you're in a scene or that something's a scene until it's dunked, like dead and gone. And you're like, oh, yeah, that was cool. We had a good time then, remember? And now <laughs> things suck. <laughs> and I feel like myself, you know, I feel like I'm usually the harbinger of like death for a scene. <laughs> like, you show up and it's just Yeah, over. <laughs> I'm just like, hey, guys, ready to party? And they're like, oh, OK, everyone's going to go move to New York now. Cool. Let's see you later. <laughs> Is that why you moved up to Olympia from L.A.? Uh, well, well, I, I moved to um, Olympia from L.A. I was like 18 because I was going to college. And uh, my friends had just started this club called The Smell. And they were, they were a little bit older than me. Um, and the only people with the, and it was like this huge warehouse. This is at the time, like, you know, like early aughts. It was a huge warehouse and there'd usually be like five people who would come. So that was my scene in LA. Like, I don't know, like I, I would say it's more of a, of a collection of friends right? that were hanging out at one point, but it was not like, you know, a bustling scene. Like our, the biggest star that would come and play would be like Nels Klein, who I adore, but you know, that like, that was a big deal. Like Nels Klein's hanging out with us, right. you know? Um, and then I left. <laughs> and then the smell and then exploded. The, yeah, and then it's like, no, H, Miku Miku. And I was like, really? <laughs> I was so bored for so long. Dang it. Yeah, I was like, mm. And then, and I had moved to Olympia in this, like, really great time when, um, there was, like, this rock opera called The Transfuse, and everyone was really excited, and, like, Lady Fest just happened, and, like, all this cool stuff. And I was like, wow, that's great. And, like, I swear to G.O.D. six months later. It was just like everyone moved. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> yeah. I was yeah. like, oh, cool. <laughs> Here <laughs> and, I am. <laughs> yeah, and then I went, I went, I graduated from Evergreen. Um, thank God. And then I <laughs> moved to Portland. And, uh, you know, that's the thing about Portland is that I had no, I had no expectations. And again, since like I was like, oh, you know, scene, like, what is that? Um, I didn't know that I was part of a scene until again, it went away. Um, and I was so lucky that I got to play like places like Deca Manor. Like when I came to Portland, I knew about it because we I would play shows uh, in bands I had been in Olympia, and I it was mainly house shows, and that was what I found so attractive about about the Portland music scene is that you could play. Um, and they were it was just teenagers. Like at the time, I was like in my mid twenties or so, but like they were just these babies that had houses, and they would just like treat you like royalty like they're just so excited that you were there and it's not like you were in a band that anyone knew of they were just excited because you were playing music you know and I like found that so charming about Portland it was actually <laughs> less jaded than Olympia and Olympia is a smaller town wow and um, I found that just so like refreshing you know so when I moved down here I mean I just like really just played I played shows like every week you know just in some buddy's house and and I remember the first time I played Holocene like I was just like what weird this is so it's odd a stage. yeah like what's happening it's like you know clothes that are too starchy you're just like oh, I don't know. <laughs> um and then that and then and then yeah like three or four years later all the house shows went away and then I was like oh yeah I was part of a scene yeah and I I swear to god I did it again I just like <laughs> I killed the scene killed the scene <laughs> Claudia Meza scene killer 
That's why we're talking to you today. Because <laughs> you we, <laughs> we're warning the country about you. If you see this woman, run. Your scene is over. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Where are you going next to Kelly? <laughs> I've heard Brooklyn's a really cool spot. I don't... <laughs> Oh my God! Hilarious. <laughs> Not a, I've been wanting to move back to LA, but they're like, "No, you're cool. Yeah, stay right <laughs> you can there. Stay there. You can stay there." Oh my <sighs> gosh! But in all seriousness, you have been in many bands that I have been a huge fan of, and you have been kind of, kind of your niche has been a little bit maybe what people would call noise rock um, to some extent. Although I can n- see that a little bit. Yeah, maybe experimental rock, something to that effect. I would have to agree. Yeah. Um, and you're a really fantastic guitar player, which I'm oh, just going to say so that everybody knows that who's listening. That's sweet. <laughs> um, but as someone who's been in multiple bands, you've never been in that one band where it was like, you know, we're now, the, we're going to be in this band for 15 years and we're, you know, right. going to the next level and we're doing all this crazy stuff. Do you feel like that just hasn't happened yet? Like you haven't found that perfect band or do you feel like playing music for you is more about just expressing yourself and and whatever situation you're in is is good for doing that yeah it's a fantastic question um one being because it's one that I'm constantly trying to answer for myself um I think when I was like a lot younger like 16 17 all I wanted was to be in like you know like my version of like the Beatles, like you love, it's a love story. Like you're just like, they just found each other and then they just wrote all these cool songs and everyone has a, an opinion and like, it's so cool. And then you read like the, you know, biographies of the Beatles and you're like, oh man, that was just, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't well, get along at all. Nobody likes same thing with the Rolling Stones <laughs> or like, you're like, you, they all have separate buses. You know, like, <laughs> well, it's like, look at Zayn Malik leaving One Direction. I'm like, that's probably the first guy who's ever actually been like, guess what? I hate you guys. I'm out. Yeah. As opposed to everybody else who's like, I will suffer in silence for the millions. I know. I think he left just because he's too handsome. Oh, you like that one? You think that oh one's cute? Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. I really, I think the Harry Styles one is so cute. You've I can't believe got, it. Well, you want. He looks like a girl. I love boys He looks look like, like your son. That's oh, why. He, does. <laughs> <laughs> he totally does. <laughs> You got me. That's why I like him. It's so true. You have the same haircut. It's like a junior. Yeah. So cute. Anyhow, um, wait, I completely, I'm like now lost in like. Oh, I was asking you about, um, you know, are you just not in that band? Well, I think what happened for for me anyhow is that um, I got, I mean, after slaying all these scenes, like I got like a little... (laughs) No, but in truth, like I got a little, uh, I felt a little bored of um, playing the same kind of shows, um, doing certain things that I felt like I wasn't growing as like a musician. And so I wanted to try something different. And it wasn't ever like that uh, perfectly worded out. You know, I was struggling through trying to figure out why I wasn't enjoying myself. You know, like my last band that I think people, um, heard about or cared about you know as much as I did um was exploding of colors and, and after playing with that with you know those you know really talented uh ladies and and not feeling any enjoyment from it and I just had to like hold back and be like what's like what's wrong with me you know and there was a lot of as you know dynamics you know that made certain things uh harder to move on or you know succeed in a certain you know industry but 
it was also me. Like, I didn't want to work on it, you know, and that's a big deal. Like, that's a decision. Um, and after that, I just started doing, like, sound installations. I started working more with PICA, uh, the Portland Institute of Contemporary Art, and doing things that um, were a little more esoteric and not, like, song structured or whatever. But I, it really did, like, help, like, develop and, and satisfy something that I knew I wasn't really getting from being in a band. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because I've been in bands since I was like fifth since I've been fifteen I've been in bands. Yeah. Been in bands that nobody's cared about since I was fifteen. <laughs> That's just <laughs> like <laughs> That's like the true life of a musician. Yeah, I just want I just want my wiki to say that. Like right. if I ever wrote Wikipedia, they're just like Claudia Mays has been in bands since she was fifteen that nobody's Nobody cares about, about. <laughs> Why do we do this? Like, are we just doing it? Do we do it for ourselves? And is it is is the art that we're getting out there making us happy enough to keep going on that path? So it's really interesting that you were kind of like, maybe the band structure is not what I need right now. Maybe I need something else. Exactly. And um, ex that's what I've been trying to kind of figure out. Because what I did after Red right after Exploding the Colors ended... I started a new band with a, a good friend of mine, and I realized that I could just write songs all day. I could just write songs, but doesn't mean that they're anything I wanted to communicate or didn't have that urgency, because I, I feel like that's the music I connect to, is there's an urgency. It's not just like, what a cool produced you know, song, which you can. You can listen to the radio and be like, well, that's a cool song, mm -hmm. you know, random ass uh, manufactured pop star. But like the thing that makes you really excited about music, it's it's the art of it. It's the communication from another artist to you. And I felt like at that point I had nothing to say. Mm -hmm. And I was like in a band that I could write pop songs or I could do this or I could try it, you know, a hat, you know, on and just be like, this is what this is what I am now or whatever. But it just wasn't at all. It didn't feel genuine. And I knew it. It was, you know, and I was like, wow, this is interesting. This is a cool project for me to like kind of figure out what I want to do next but it's not something that maybe I should like be investing as much time because being in a band and being a, mu a working musician is hard work. Like it's really, it's really hard. I work. feel like people. I think I, I feel stupid saying that out loud, but I feel like people just need to hear it like over and over again. Yeah, no, they do. Like, they just need to hear it. Like it's really hard work, and especially now when um, just the way people are getting paid and the industry is changing, especially young musicians, and they're trying to figure out how to make money and all that. Like, it's even more interesting, like, how much harder it's become. Um, but it's also kind of exciting. But I also, I find, like, looking at really, yeah, I, I find, like, staring off cliffs exciting. And I'm sure <laughs> most people would be terrified. <laughs> so tell us about some of your sound installations. Like, what kinds of themes are you exploring with this stuff? I do a lot of stuff with field recordings. Um and creating like new instruments or a new or more interactive uh it's almost like my way of interacting with an audience that i'm used to doing while i'm on stage but this way it lives in a room people can go in and then kind of create their own um narrative of what you know of what they're experiencing and i find that um i find that really exciting uh and also i mean i'm pretty much i've always been obsessed with john cage um and so that to me, I mean, I think if people follow any of my sound art, they'll just be like, I know someone who likes John Cage. <laughs> <laughs> um, just as much as if someone listened to my music, they're like, somebody likes the slits, you know. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's true. Um, but yeah, so what I did, um, 
like this last thing I did with Pico is they allowed me to, they like found me 32 or 33 of these Caliphone tape players. Um, Caliphone tape players, they're like the kind, if you're like old enough, there was at one point a language arts room or like if you were in ESL, you would sit down um, with these tapes and like learn how to say words correctly or like not have a lisp or whatever. And I was always in one of those classes because I talk, I used to talk really funny when I was a kid, I guess. And I also didn't know English. So... (laughs) So I like hung out with these tape players all the time and they would give them, they would make, they're like, you can go home with them and practice. And I found out you could like record over the tapes if you put like a piece of like, um, like clear tape on a tab. And then I just started using it to record my like everyday sounds. Like I was like, oh, this is cool. And I would like create, I would tell it stories. It just became this thing that I like really loved um, and that I would Without knowing, I was making, like, little mixtapes, you know, of just, like, cr- I would sing into it. I would just record my mom washing dishes because I thought it sounded cool. Um, I, and I'm, it sounds really precocious, but I was just not doing my homework is what I was, <laughs> you know, doing. Right. Um, and so when I got older, I just, I used to have these images of, like, all these tape. I actually just had a dream of me going into a room and all those tape players, I'm sure it was just my brain working stuff out, were hanging from the ceiling. The, the exact same California phone tape player. And every time I would hit play, I was like trying to get, I was trying to remember something. I can't explain it. It was just like this weird dream where I was like, I wanted something and this tape players were in and I couldn't remember, I couldn't hear it. And like, um, and then I woke up and I was like, what a cool dream, you know, frustrating, but what a cool dream. And then I was like, I wonder what the tape players were playing. And then that's how I kind of oh, cool. came to that sound installation. And I, um, decided that they were playing um, pitched water sounds. So then you could create like these chords or these like rhythms with just water. But most people who go in, like they, you wouldn't know if it was water because I manipulated it, you know, uh-huh. to a point where um, they just sound, it sounded, sometimes people thought it was like crazy, um, like uh, Tibetan bowls. Oh, yeah. Because I would just get the, like, last bit of a resonance from, like, mm-hmm. a, like and then, you know, echo wow. it out. So, yeah, it was fun. I really liked it. It was cool. It was one of those things where um, I've always wanted to make music where I didn't know what it sounded like till it happened. Yeah. And I find that very exciting. And yeah. um, so I think that's what, what that, you know, the installation was about. And it really did help me kind of let go because I've been – I'm a pretty uptight composer, but yet I love – John Cage, and he is not an uptight composer. Um, right. His whole thing is to take the hand out of the, you know, of the art form so like the stink of your hand is not in your work. You're just sort of letting it be. It's super zen and right. kind of hippie. And, yeah. Um, yeah, and so that was my way of, I was like, oh, I, I see what he does. I'm pretty sure he's really, like the most uptight people in the world are the ones that are like, oh, I'm not uptight, you know. <laughs> I meditate. I'm completely calm, can't you Yeah. Tell? Yeah. Now, were people able, when people went into this installation, were they able to push play? They were doing it themselves? Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. So you found this completely other way to interact with an audience. Yeah. But you didn't even have to be there. No. I that's d- so cool. And I heard really cool stories, like, from the people that, um, you know, taking care of the gallery. They were just like, yeah, I mean, people are hanging out here for, like, a half hour, which is a big deal. Like, most people just zoop, zoop, and they leave, right, you know? Right. Um, and I was like, that's awesome. I heard, well, the first time I was there, someone walked in and just turned them all off and left. And I was like, that's really cool. Yeah, that was a really interesting decision. <laughs> what, what are you saying about sound? Yeah, well, I just, 
but I yeah that's cool though um so yeah and then um I've I went to like an art high school and I'm a big nerd I'm a big art nerd and I went there for like literature and criticism and theater and film and so once I started doing sound installations I went back to my love of like video and film and started making like really weird non-narrative slow down images of things like you know kids headbanging just what that looks like or Mm -hmm. just odd stuff and I started working on like oh god it's gonna sound so pretentious um but like a wordless opera which by the way was a terrible idea because (laughs) (laughs) you kind of need some words (laughs) but I just wanted to hear like a choir no context of like you know story or anything but just you could feel it and it was with drums and I like um used some taiko drummers in town and and they showed that at the at another pika event and it was really cool and I was just being like I was it was one of those things where I'm like oh I can just like come up with these ideas and then I have resources to do it that's cool you know um so I got really into that but the thing about doing that kind of stuff is that like it's another it's another world where nobody cares, mm-hmm. you know, because you're working in this very niche. Um, I don't know. I mean, I care. I mean, <laughs> and the people who are putting it on care and I'm not trying at all like, um, you know, I'm not trying to be like super humble. Like I'm just saying like there's not, you know, the art world is just really big. And like the people who did enjoy it. I mean, it's, in Portland's a small town. So it's just like I know I'm I'm kind of just like sending balloons out to like, you know, <laughs> sending like these like helium balloons out to nowhere. But I do it because I have to. So right. just to go back to your question of like, what you know, what, why do you still do this? Or I mean, I'm sure it wasn't just like <laughs> it wasn't that like, what do you why are you why, still why are you doing this? <laughs> why did you go get a job? Jesus. <laughs> it's because I, I like I have to. Right. And if I don't, I get really depressed because I've tried. Just, I worked at a advertising agency for three years and I like, oh, my God, that was and it wasn't like the people there were really nice. I was still doing a ton of projects. Most of these projects I actually was doing while I was at the advertising agency. But I really because I was just like, I'm just going to get a job in the creative industry. Get paid to be creative. Right. That sounds awesome. Right. And I just realized I was like, oh, yeah, just because you can doesn't mean that it's going to like feel good it's not like you should do it but it's like doesn't mean that it's the same it's not coming from the same place claudia meza thank you so much for joining us on the future of what thanks for having me can i have a taste of your ice cream can i lift the crumbs from your table can i interfere in your crisis no mind your own business no mind your own Today on The Future of What, you heard Joyless Street by Bitch Magnet, Year of the Glad by Marnie Stern, and Eyes, Hands, Mouth by Explode Into Colors. Our theme music is Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. If you missed any of this show and you want to hear it again, we're at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat. You can also find us on Facebook. Just search Future of What. Reed Harvey is our engineer. Will Watts and John Sepulveda produce the show. Special thanks to Amy Polanski and all the folks at Digital One Studios in Portland. I'm Portia Sabin. Thanks for listening. Ice cream.